Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Progeny Podcast. Today I'm joined by Sister Batul Subeti, who is a graduate chemical engineer from the University of Birmingham and a political analyst with special interest in the Middle East and Western foreign policy. Through her activism, she aims to raise awareness about the root cause of injustice in the world. Sister Batul, thank you for joining us. Assalamu alaikum. It's my absolute honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start straight up by asking you, what does Free Palestine mean to you? Free Palestine means many different things to me. Um, I think from the core of the issue, um, Palestine is a very, very special location. Um, We know it houses the third holiest site for the Muslims. That's Masjid al-Aqsa. So when we are championing the cause of Palestine, we are actually championing the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not me who said in the Quran, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, subhanallah, asra bi'abdihi, laylan min al-masjid al-harami ila al-masjid al-aqsa, ladhi barakna hawlahu. Right? It's a ard mubaraka, ard muqaddasa. This land, the biggest shame to occur in the history of humanity occurred on this land. And that is because the Zionist project, there was a meeting point in the interests between the imperialists and the Zionist project. And what we saw that happened in Palestine was actually the greatest uh, settler colonial conspiracy project because it saw the colluding of the world superpowers who all came together to uh, conspire on the uprooting and the ethnically cleansing of the indigenous Palestinian people. Imagine you had um, Great Britain, which is actually the reason uh, that the wrong state exists. And by the way, when I address... um, Israel. Um, I don't use the word Israel. I use the word wrong state. I think it's very important that we seek to reclaim the narrative and not buy into um, the uh, false narratives of um, mainstream media. Um, So the wrong state um, was actually founded by Britain, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the legacy of the country that we live in um, at the time of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And um, when the British Empire um, fell into demise and um, it lost its power and that's when the US as a superpower um, rose and took over the reins of Britain. Um, So when the 1947 UN partition plan happened you had the world superpowers including the Soviet Union, the USSR, that actually sent you know, swathes of Jewish settlers to um, come into Palestine to um, completely ethnically cleanse. And you had the depopulation of over 550 villages. So that is half of total historic Palestine was depopulated in 1948 during what was known as the Nakba. The Nakba in Arabic means the catastrophe. And you had over a million Palestinians that were made to be refugees. Imagine, that's 85% of the total land that is now considered the land of the wrong state, right? All of this happened in such a short period of time. And um, that shows you the magnitude of the oppression. That's why when I talk about free Palestine, um, I make a distinction between what we're seeing in Palestine today as an oppression and any kind of oppression that you see anywhere else in the world. Because what is happening in Palestine today is, as we call it, a Nakba al-Mustamirra, the ongoing catastrophe. Because what happened in 1948 continues to happen until today and what we see in Sheikh Jarrah is just a very very small snippet right of what happened on mass scale in 1948 in 1967 when the war happened the six-day war you had a further half a million Palestinians that were made uh, refugees as well so free Palestine is um, an anti-colonial movement it's um, saying no to imperialism it's saying no to being in the shackles of um, foreigners who um, basically want to exert their power and their dominance by any means necessary Um, saying free palestine means um, guaranteeing the salvation for all of humanity because if you guarantee palestine salvation then you're guaranteeing that humanity is not exceeding the boundaries of human rights as we saw it as transpired 
with the Nakba. It's we're saying no to these superpowers coming in um, and exploiting another people's lands and violently ethnically cleansing their people. Um, so the struggle for the Palestinians is the struggle for all of humanity worldwide because if we don't chant free Palestine, if we don't stand up with the Palestinians, then we're giving the green light to the aggressors. We're giving the green light to the superpowers to um, replicate the Nakba in any other area, right? So what threatens them more than anything is the voice of resistance. What's, what threatens them is for the mass populations or any entity, whether it's a political party, whether it's an organization, to actually see right through them and recognize them for what they are. It's to say, we won't give you recognition. Your existence is illegal. Your base is illegal. You had no right to exist. The UN had no right to just um, carve Palestine up as though it's a piece of bread you know and to um, grant it to these uh, settlers that have no basis or no right to it and to further use religion as a cover for the crimes that they were committing that's another huge gross injustice that's not focused on is how they've actually weaponized a faith right of whole faith in its entirety to justify the ethnic cleansing and actually when we talk about anti-semitism for example we see that that has actually been ratcheted up in no small part due to um the zionist state claiming to use religion as a cover talking of anti-semitism some people get confused as in when i speak against israel the kian the false state um, I'm being anti-Semitic So it's understanding the root of the issue What do we define as Zionism So Zionism is actually a political ideology And Zionism um, rose to prominence In the beginning of the 19th century So during the 1820s um, It basically espouses the formation Of a um, national home for the Jewish people And actually it's interestingly enough Zionism began as a Christian project Before it was a Jewish one mm. um, So this was um, what was considered a debate Within the evangelical Christian church And they saw that actually The migration of the Jews to Palestine So this is the evangelical Christians Would precipitate the uh, second coming of the Messiah um, The uh, then that would lead to the coming of the Messiah and um, that would lead to ultimately the resurrection of the dead, the uh, conversion of the Jews to Christianity or to hell as as they believe. Um, and so anti-Zionism became a moral position at that time against romantic nationalism and against Christian fundamentalism that today we um, call uh, Christian Zionism really. So it's really interesting when we actually find out that Zionism began as a Christian project before it was a Jewish one. And when the Jewish intellectuals adopted Zionism as a um, response to anti-Semitism that um, existed in the beginning of the 20th century, um, their anti antagonists were mainly other Jews. Their antagonists, the antagonists of the Zionist project, were other Jews that um, basically saw the premature return to Palestine as tempering with the will of God. And they actually viewed it as a heresy to substitute a rich monotheistic religion with this poor idea of romantic nationalism. So actually, it's really interesting to know that when the Balfour Declaration, the motion was passed in 1917 in Parliament by Alf Arthur Balfour, Arthur Balfour, he actually weaponized anti-Semitism. He stoked up um, and he activated the slogan of anti-Semitism. Imagine he was um, a proponent of Zionism. He was advocating for the creation of a homeland for the Jewish people. And obviously this wasn't because he cared about the Jewish people and he wanted to realize this kind of Zionist dream. But it was ultimately in the meeting of the interests between the imperialists and the Zionists. So the Zionists themselves were hunters for sources of power that could actualize their vision of a Jewish homeland. And wherever the imperialists place the Zionists, they will follow. And that's why, actually, if you look at the um, original documents of Zionism, um, as purported by the father of Zionism, as they call him, Theodore Herzl, the initial, was the initial discussion was actually on creating this Jewish homeland in British East Africa. Mm. They wanted to create it in British East Africa, but then Britain came along and said, hold on, that's not really going to serve our interests. Palestine is a very strategic location. We want to maintain a military base in the uh, heart and in the core of the uh, Middle East. Um, and what is the function that we see of the wrong state today? The function of the wrong state is to basically act as a stick for the superpower. So before it was Britain and today it's America. And that stick, who is holding that stick? 
America's holding that state. Mm. So America is the one that is in full control of the wrong state. And its existence um, wholly and completely depends on it militarily, financially, economically, etc. So actually, you find that Arthur Balfour himself, he used um, terminology like Jews are an alien and Jews are a hostile people in order to encourage the migration of Jews to historic Palestine. And you'd also be interested to know that um, during... With within the British cabinet at that time, the only Jew, Edwin Montagu, he actually called Zionism a mischievous political creed because he could look through it. He could look at how um, actually Zionism was being weaponized to um, achieve the agenda. Sorry, how um, anti-Semitism was being weaponized in order to achieve the agenda of the British Empire at that time. And he actually saw how Zionism was, um, how it was having, or it would potentially have negative impacts on the lives of wealthy British uh, Jews who would end up migrating to um, this land um, and would be at the mercy of a superpower. Is that why we see like a lot of Jewish people at protests for Palestine. Yeah, you find there are Jewish rabbis, particularly, um, but I would argue those Jewish rabbis are probably a minority. Mm. Um, but you find them within protests, um, especially those who are the the, the Carter, um, as they call themselves. And you actually find that they are very orthodox in their practice of Judaism. Mm. So, for example, on Saturdays, um, it is their Sabbath, um, and they observe it very religiously. I mean, even when you see them coming to protests, um, they don't use technology on those days. Um, they don't even speak to women on those days, and that's how conservative they are. Um, they don't use public transport, for example. I'm just giving you an idea of how, when I look at them, I genuinely regard them as real Jews. Like, they take their religion very, very so seriously. So it's not a war of religion in Palestine. But religion has been weaponized. That's mm. ultimately the case so in 2018 you see that actually the Knesset which is the Israeli parliament they passed a law um, which basically called um, the wrong state um, the nation state of the Jewish people so that so what was um, the big hysteria there is that all this apartheid that's been existing since 1947 has officially become codified within the law in 2018 and the reason they did that the reason that they called the wrong state um, a Jewish state exclusively so citizenship is exclusively for the Jewish people so right now in the wrong state you have around 5 million um, Israeli settlers and you have about 2 million Palestinians living there the 2 million Palestinians are not recognized as citizens they're not recognized as citizens due to the nation state bill that was passed um, and that categorically only gives citizenship to Jewish people now this coincided with the rise of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and if you look at the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism in the 12 examples given around seven or eight of them mention Israel. And this is huge. So this means, if you look at some of the um, examples given, if you call the wrong state a um, racist endeavor, that will classify as anti-Semitism, right? Because this is a Jewish state, right? So what they're, they're trying to purposefully conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. And the sole purpose is to stifle criticism on the wrong state, is to stifle any kind of uh, debate, is to silence that tiny percentage of of um, independent media that's not under the control of the mainstream media, that's not under the control of the uh, Zionist lobby. And we see uh, practical examples of how this manifested. So, for example, um, the constant onslaught and smear campaign on Jeremy Corbyn to bring him down as an anti-Semite. It's really interesting if you look at Corbyn's history of standing in solidarity with the Jews and fighting neo-Nazis during the 1970s. He was pivotal in organizing mass protests in Wood Green against neo-Nazis that wanted to burn synagogues, for example. And he has a, um, you know, a well-documented history of fighting racism as an anti-racist campaigner. Um, But you find that actually the mass media was so successful in smearing him to the extent that the mass population gave into the whole hysteria that was weaponized with the whole anti-Semitism. Um, and the same was case, and the same was the case in America, for example, with the delegitimization of Ilhan Omar, who um, is a congresswoman. Um, so we have many examples of that. How right now anti-Semitism, this new threat of anti-Semitism, was particularly heightened post 9 11. Um, and Norman Finkelstein has written a lot about this new threat of anti-Semitism and how this new threat of anti-Semitism, it's not concerned with the crude forms of anti-Semitism, um, but it's really concerned with um, sort of fighting what is considered to be Jewish privilege or Jewish interests on a higher level. So um, if you question, for example, um, 
the state of Israel, the wrong state, for example. Um, if you question the influence of the Zionist lobby, um, the the Israeli lobby in various uh, countries in the West, particularly in America, which is very, very strong. And it's really interesting when I was talking to you about the evangelical Christians, they are staunch anti-Semites. But at the same time, they are very, very pro-Zionism. And actually, they're pro-Zionism because they're anti-Semites. So their idea is that Zion is that the Jews, we want to contain them in this land. And if we contain them in this land, then that means that we don't have to see their sight again in the West, right? And so that's why it's really interesting when we talk about anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, for example, we raise the question of Arthur Balfour, right? He was someone who stated what was considered anti-Semitic, right? But at the same time, he advocated for the Zionist cause. And you have many Jews who are, as we've mentioned, they're Jews. But do you know what? It becomes really interesting because Jews like, for example, Noam Chomsky, um, and you have Norman Finkelstein, for example, his parents were actually, um, they suffered during the Holocaust. His mm. parents, his whole family was exterminated. Um, but, do you know, but do you know what they call him? They don't call him an anti-Semite because he's a Jew. They call him a self-hating Jew. They say he needs psychiatric help. That's the way that they frame Jews that are basically anti-Zionism uh, because they see the reality for what it is. They see that Zionism is just an extension of uh, colonialism and they deal with the facts on the ground. They don't deal with the... Um, you know, so-called assertions that, um, you know, Jews have a right to this land because they inhabited this land 3,000 years ago, when actual evidence and history on the ground actually shows that Jews inhabited that land less than even Muslims did, or even Christians, you know? They they don't use these uh, stories which the uh, wrong state tries to use to justify um, their presence. When we're talking about anti-Semitism, we should point our fingers at the wrong state and say, how dare you actually take advantage of real Jewish suffering and use that as a political tool, right? As a so-called Jewish state, you are actually the reason that we are witnessing anti-Semitism and that there is a rise in anti-Semitism. So it just shows you that even as they call themselves the so-called Jewish state, they don't really care about um, really the interests of the Jews and the diaspora. They couldn't care less because if they cared, then they wouldn't weaponize anti-Semitism in that kind of way. And can you imagine how the mass populations feel when they see, for example, someone like Jeremy Corbyn is actually innocent of these uh, smear allegations and these smear allegations are being weaponized against um, him. That actually, what that does is it waters down Jewish suffering. If everything starts getting labeled as anti-Semitic, do you know what people will start doing? They'll come out and they'll say, is it anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist? If that's the case, then I'm anti-Semitic. Do you see what I'm saying? If, if, if that's the default position, if the default position that's codified within the law is that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, well, I'm an anti-Zionist. If that makes me an anti-Semite, well, then so be it, right? Do you see what I'm saying? That that's based on what's codified within the law. But obviously, um, the sentiment is not against ordinary Jewish people. The sentiment is against, and let's point back to the root cause, um, it's against the usurpers of land. It's against those who commit the worst grave human rights violations. And even worse than that, they use the name of religion as a cover for that. And that's what needs to be ultimately tackled in this whole discussion. L let's talk about the, the, the recent offence. You yeah. mentioned uh, you know, at the beginning, Sheikh Jarrah. Yeah. Um, this we saw many clips of, you know, settlers coming and literally asking people to, to leave their yeah. homes yeah. you know and that's how the recent conflict started if i'm not mistaken so yeah so there what's interesting is actually this is where again, is sheikh jarrah by the way okay, in the location so let me explain some context right yeah so sheikh jarrah is in east jerusalem mm. east jerusalem is occupied territories it's occupied by the wrong state it was annexed in 1967 so in mm -hmm. 1967 when the six-day war happened gaza was annexed the west bank was annexed and east jerusalem was annexed as well as the golan heights so that's syrian territory and the sinai peninsula which is um, egyptian territory mm -hmm. so gaza west bank and east jerusalem under international law is recognized as purely Palestinian territories. So the wrong state has no jurisdiction whatsoever. It has no right to station its military on that land. Now, specifically East Jerusalem, um, sorry, specifically Jerusalem is considered international territory. Yeah, so that's 
that's why, for example, um, when uh, Trump came out and he uh, said Hold we're going to recognize exactly the wrong state as the eternal, uh, as, sorry, Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the wrong state. Um, that's why that was so contentious because he's coming out there and he's brazenly saying something that's so anti-international law. And even international law doesn't give justice to um, the Palestinian people, you know. So even on the merit of international law, which is inherently unjust in the way that um, it has uh, sort of usurped the rights of the Palestinians and allowed this Nakba to continue, we find that someone like Trump comes and he even defies international law. So Sheikh Jarrah is within the neighborhood of East Jerusalem and so is Al-Quds. Mm. So um, the recent escalations that we saw, um, the media likes to call them forced evictions. Um, I don't use that kind of terminology. It kind of, um, sign- well, that kind of terminology signifies as though there was a kind of dispute, you know, mm. with the Palestinians and these settlers and it needs to be taken the court and the court will see and the court will make a ruling and depending on that they'll either be granted the land or not it's like these families have been living there for generations and generations and decades and decades for hundreds and hundreds of years and these settlers some of them have just freshly come with new york accents literally from america from russia from ukraine literally coming and they have the audacity to say to them give us your land you know and i think there was a footage that went very viral of a man saying okay well if i don't steal it Someone they, else will. Yes, yeah, someone else is going to do it. The state is going to do it. When we have the Israeli Supreme Court that's on our side, right? And international law gives them the green light. International law doesn't meddle in their affairs. And it's interesting, even the international, um, sorry, some some human, some human rights groups um, were um, disputing with the um, Israeli High Court, which actually said that um, it is legal to shoot unarmed civilians. Imagine. So this is, I'm just trying to demonstrate, this is the kind of high court that we're dealing with. This high court believes that um, it is legitimate to shoot unarmed Palestinians because it doesn't actually recognize Palestinians as civilians. There's no such, they they don't recognize the language of civilians. And you know what? That makes sense. For the wrong state, it makes sense for them to not recognize Palestinians as civilians because their existence, if they want to survive, it depends on the forced eradication, expulsion, and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. And they know that every, every single Palestinian that's going to grow up will be a freedom fighter will be an obstruction to the Zionist dream which is why they fight them with full force anyways just going back to the main topic with Sheikh Jarrah um, the court ruled that actually by May they would um, allow the forced uh, removal and dispossession and uh, to grant the refugee status to six families um, within Sheikh Jarrah so we're talking about hundreds of people here and by August another seven families were going to be forcefully um, expelled from their homeland to make way for fresh um, Jewish occupying uh, settlers. Now, um, this gained widespread coverage. Why did it gain widespread coverage? Because usually when the wrong state um, seeks to seize land, it does it very slowly. And it does it over a long period of time so that there isn't this kind of international outroar and outcry. It's almost like they know they know what they're doing and they've been doing this since 1948. So they've become absolute professionals at this. Um, so, um, you know, many, um, not just in Jarrah and in the West Bank, you had protests that erupted in Gaza. You had protests actually that erupted within the 1948 borders. So I told you about the 2 million Palestinians, the 1.9 million who live in the wrong state. So you had widespread protests that were occurring in there. Now, that's quite a new phenomenon. A, l- a lot of people assume that the Palestinians that are living within the territories of the wrong state, they're kind of now asleep, like khalas, they're integrated within um, the wrong state. They... Um, have the passport of the wrong state. Um, they have a lot more rights than you would have in Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So they're kind of privileged and they're happy with their lives. But no, um, when the Palestinians across historic Palestine saw what was happening in Hay Sheikh Jarrah, that brought to them the memories of the Nakba. That brought to them the memories of the generations before them um, that were ethnically cleansed and dispossessed um, from their lands and uprooted and massacred. Um, and so... After that, you had um, the wrong state's response to the peaceful protests that were happening. And by the way, this was at a very heated time when you had many Israeli settlers um, marching through the streets and chanting uh, death to the Arabs. And um, the wrong state also um, put uh, barracks 
um, across, I think it was old Damascus Gate, um, shutting the door of the Al-Aqsa worshippers um, who were going to mosque um, on the holy nights um, of Ramadan and, spe- and specifically in Laylatul Qadr. And the um, firing from the wrong state intensified. They started to throw rubber bullets, stun grenades, uh, tear gases into Al-Aqsa Mosque where peaceful uh, worshippers were uh, simply wanting to just conduct their prayers. And uh, of course, we have to understand that for the resistance group, Al-Aqsa and Jerusalem is the focal point. It's a red line. The settlers, the uh, wrong state has no right to even have their troops stationed there, let alone to attack worshippers in the den of the night when they're praying, right? And they made it very clear to them if you don't cease to stop, because hundreds, hundreds of protesters were being, uh, um, you know, hurt, um, and you had a few deaths as well, they made it very clear to them that if you don't stop as an ultimatum, um, we will attack. We will attack the heart of the wrong state. We will attack the heart of Tel Abib as a retaliation if you don't stop. They didn't continue to stop, so the resistance decided to um, send their rockets through into the heart of the Iron Dome. And of course, we can discuss what that means in terms of how it's actually changed the balance of forces on the ground and how it's changed the equations on the ground. Because right now, you could say two weeks ago, it's completely different to now. There's a whole new equation that's settled on the ground in terms of the balance of forces just because of those 10 days of, um, you know, as they call it, the uprising and the onslaught. Do you see why the Jewish community in in the wrong state, Israel, feel that they have also a right to live here because, you know, the you know, the Jewish community were here before the the, the, the Muslim community. And in fact, international law uh, grants them citizenship and the state of Israel uh, is recognized by the United Nations. So, you know, they've got a right to live here. There has to be a sense of order in place. And the order is international law. So, therefore, they're following international law and they're living uh, in this state and they just want to live peacefully. But it's just the Palestinians aren't letting them live peacefully. Right. Let's let's talk about international law and mm. the contention with international law. So, as I mentioned previously, um, it was international law. It was the UN that formed after World War II with the crumbling of the British Empire and the rise of America that uh, came together and they instigated the partition plan. And the partition plan was very unjust in its nature. You had from the onset of the Balfour Declaration in 1917 to when Britain gained mandate over Palestine in 1923. So when Britain gained mandate of Palestine in 1923, 6% of the population were uh, Jewish, right? They were indigenous Jews, right? The contention was never with Jewish people. 6% of historic Palestinians um, before the British mandate were Jews. When the British mandate came into effect until uh, right before the Nakba, the population of Jewish settlers um, rose from 6% to 33%. And they were encouraged from you know, across the globe to migrate. It's really interesting. Um, within the Balfour Declaration itself as well, um, Arthur Balfour himself stated that this will not come at the expense of the Palestinians, right? Mm. The erection of a Jewish state and the creation of a um, homeland for the Jewish people, a national homeland, will not come at the expense of the Palestinians. And Winston Churchill himself was instigated with the task of actually going to Palestine and actually reassuring Palestinian leaders, don't worry about it. Nothing will happen to you. You won't be disadvantaged by any of this. Um, And at the same time, the Jewish settlers uh, increased um, their formation of settlements. Um, They started to form their own organizations, their own league. And uh, of course, the Palestinians started to realize that actually Zionism was an existential threat to their existence because they're seeing the rise of these settlers, these foreign settlers from across the globe coming into their land, setting up their own institutions, not formally a part of the government because the government back then was Palestinian, was um, under the British uh, mandate. So this was um, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Um, And the Palestinians became very, very worried about this. What is going on? Um, These small enclaves of, of Jewish communities are forming and they weren't benign communities. 
they were clashing with the Palestinians, um, clashing in the worst kind of form. In from 1936 to 1939, you had the Arab Revolt, the Great Arab Revolt, um, against um, a lot of the crimes that were being committed by paramilitary Zionist organizations. So you had organizations like the Haganah, Stern, um, Ergun. Um, these were all different kinds of organizations who actually were responsible for the ethnic cleansing during the Nakba. So um, the uh, population of Jewish settlers by 1948 was 30%. But the UN, it turns around and what does it do? It grants 55% of that land to the Jewish settlers. And when the Nakba transpired, you had 85% of the Palestinians that were living in what is now considered the wrong state, right? 85% of them were made homeless, were forcefully expelled and rendered in refugee camps. And you have around 1.5 million Palestinians today living in refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, um, in Turkey even, um, and living in the worst conditions because they're stateless. They're not recognized as, obviously they're not granted citizenship of the country. And I don't believe they should be because they are Palestinians and that is their... Um, identity and it should remain as such but you can imagine i mean living as refugees depending on humanitarian aid for your survival that's 1.5 million of them um and the remaining palestinians you know notwithstanding the palestinians that were internally displaced you know from places like haifa from places like yafa from places like nazareth who were forced into the gaza uh, strip which is an area which is the size of sheffield <laughs> literally it's mm. 385 kilometers so small right housing 1.5 million palestinians and into the west bank and east jerusalem which ha which houses 3 million palestinians they were massacred 100,000 of them massacred so are we against Jews um, having their right to um, their own homeland to self-determination actually what you see is the Zionists have tried have tried to frame the Palestinians right to return believe it or not they've tried to frame it as anti-semitic why because they say that Palestinian right to return will deny a majority Jewish state and if it denies a majority Jewish state, then it's denying Jews the right to self-determination. Hence, Palestinian right to return. The Palestinians that have been there for decades and decades are not allowed because imagine a Palestinian, right, who is being oppressed. On top of being oppressed, they're told by their perpetrators, you are anti-Semitic for opposing our colonization of your land. That's how absurd it's become. So when we look at the wrong state, we see that in order to survive, it needs to expand. So further than even just historic Palestine, it went into Lebanon. In 1982, it invaded Lebanon. It invaded South Lebanon. And in 1983-84, Ariel Sharon found himself at the heart of the capital in Beirut. And that's before Majdarit uh, Sabra Shatila, the Sabra and Shatila massacres occurred where 4,000 Palestinians uh, were butchered in broad daylight for three days for three consecutive days Ariel Sharon and his uh, terrorist organization went in there and they butchered the Palestinians the majority of whom were women and children because they actually before that two weeks before that they um, issued a statement asking the Palestinian men to leave which I find very interesting it's almost like they went there purposefully to kill the women and children and when Ariel Sharon was asked where do your borders lie? He said, our borders are where our tanks stand. Our borders are where our tanks lie. So actually, from the Nile to the Euphrates is our slogan, right? Our slogan is to expand as much as we can. If we can expand into Jordan, if we can expand into Iraq, you know, there's no limit to their greed for lust and power because they recognize that in order to defend itself and to survive, it needs to expand. If it's limited by its geographical expanse, their survival is at stake. Their survival is threatened. And this comes in very important when we discuss the ceasefire and the victory of the ceasefire and what that means um, in terms of the limitation of the uh, geographical expanse. Um, before we get to the ceasefire, I just want to mention yeah. something that you, that you touched upon, which is the refugees. Yeah. Um, there's a stat that says apparently there's more than 5.6 million Palestinians that are, have been registered with the UN as refugees, yeah. uh, which is quite a huge number. There's apparently over six to seven million Palestinians outside of Palestine, yeah. most of whom are in Jordan, uh, neighboring Syria, Lebanon. Lebanon. Yeah. Um, one thing that always strikes me when I speak to some 
some people in these areas is they complain about the Palestinian refugees. Uh, And I also, another thing is that I noticed that the states that they are in who are supposedly Muslim as well as Arab states are not really supporting them. Do you not find it shocking if some say that even the Muslims aren't looking after the Palestinians? They're in these Arab states like Jordan and uh, Lebanon and Syria. They're not even getting rights there. Yeah. You know why should why should Israel give them rights? Their own Arab brethren, their own Muslim brothers and sisters in these states are not even supporting them or giving them any rights, and they're living mm-hmm. in refugee camps. and And sometimes, quite, I would say you can't even live in these areas. If yeah. you uh, you know, I've seen clips of, of the of these of these camps, yet we're expecting. Israel to give them rights when their own Muslim brothers aren't giving them rights. Right, it's not about the expectation of the mm. wrong state to give them rights. Mm. Um, the only justice that can be administered is if the biggest shame to occur was reversed. Right. So these two issues are not mutually exclusive. Right. And we need to classify the issues here. When we talk about the aggression of the wrong state, that's the primary aggression. If the Palestinians are refugees, it's because of the actions of the wrong state. Now, when we move on to these other countries, now, I mean, other countries are not really moral enterprises. (laughs) The governments don't. I mean, if you look at, for example, Lebanon, you find many Lebanese people, the majority of Lebanese people are living in dire poverty, for example, you know, um, let alone them, you know, turning a blind eye and granting Palestinians, um, you know, their basic human rights, for example. Um, and Palestinians are very disadvantaged in, in these kinds of lands. I agree, especially in Lebanon, my my home country. Um, they are denied the right to uh, work, the right to a proper, you know, state education. Um, and because they're not granted citizenship, and by the way, um, I agree with not granting them citizenship, but I don't agree with stripping them off their rights because at the end of the day, they are Palestinians. And because they're Palestinians, the one thing that the wrong state wants to do is it wants to dissolve the Palestinians into their host populations, right? So if they're living in Lebanon, oh, please get Lebanese citizenship and become Lebanese and integrate yourself so we can forget about you. One of the biggest threats to the wrong state from the start of its inception was, what are we going to do with the future generations of Palestinians that grow? You know, this biggest shame that occurred will remain in the conscious of humanity because of the Palestinian diaspora, which is not going to be un- which is not going to be comfortable with the fact that its own ancestors were stripped of their land. Right. And they're suffering the consequences until today. They won't be comfortable with the fact that they are indigenous Palestinians, but they're not even granted the right to return. Um, so when we talk about who the onus is on, the onus is on the wrong state. Of course, the onus is on the wrong state. And we should never lose sight of that. Um, when it comes to these other countries, yes, these other countries bear a moral responsibility. Um, and we should lobby that they gain them the basic human rights. But it's not one or the other. It doesn't make sense. And let's let's deal with the root cause of the issue here as well. Talking of, 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 of a solution for this, and you mentioned that the solution is that every piece of land goes back to the Palestinian that has been taken by the wrong state. But you have someone like the UK ambassador to Palestine, who I saw recently in an interview. Uh, you have Palestinian leaders. You have people like uh, Yasser Arafat, who all at the end realized that the only solution in their mind is a two-state solution. Why can't the resistance group why can't the palestinians come to a solution where they can share this land uh, because if you if you have leaders in, in palestine asking for this and realizing that this is the only solution why don't we work towards that right so again this this kind of line of reasoning and this kind of narrative um shows a deficiency in an, in an understanding of how the wrong state actually works and actually goes against the empirical evidence on the ground so let me give you an example um okay from, from a primary position let me start by just explaining a bit about the peace so-called peace talks i think this is very important so the first country um to actually recognize the wrong state the first arab or if you would like to call it Muslim country, Muslim majority country, to recognize the wrong state was um, Egypt. This was in the Camp David Accords in 1978. Yeah. So this was when I think um, 
Yes, Anwar said that, and it was brokered by uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter at that time. Yeah. Yes. So Camp David. Yes, exactly. So the greatest threat to the wrong state is what is being denied legitimacy. Is an entity looking at it in the face and saying you are unjust and you have no right to exist. Right. That is the greatest threat that it can ever experience, and we actually see that any any so-called peace talk that it's entered in. The sole objective for why it's entered that peace talk is to be granted that legitimacy because that's what it seeks. It seeks, as long as it doesn't have legitimacy, it's always going to feel worried. It's always going to feel scared. It's always going to feel not secure. So three quarters of handing it over on a silver platter to the to the wrong state is actually giving them legitimacy. That threatens them more than arms and weapons threaten them. If you are using um, armed resistance, but you're recognizing them, that doesn't threaten them as much of an as much as an entity that doesn't have much weapons, but actually recognizes them for what they are and says, we won't give you recognition. We don't recognize you have a right to exist. So that threatens on a primary level the wrong state more than anything. So all its efforts um, during the late 70s, 80s, 90s has been trying, and which continues until today with the Abraham Accords, as we will be discussing, is trying to get other entities in the region to recognize it, is to basically dissolve itself with the whole region and to say, do you know what? Don't consider us as this foreign entity, right? Just forget about the past. Let's let's move in the future now and let's not discuss the restoration of rights. Okay, so that was um, in 1978. Then you had what was even more worrying than Anwar Sadat, normalizing ties, was when the PLO changed their strategy from one of armed resistance <laughs> to one of um, actually, okay, I'm not going to call it the normalization of times. I'm going to call it the Israelization, okay? Because when we're talking about normalization, it indicates that there's kind of a balance of power on both sides and there's a symmetry of power. And that's not the case. It's Israelization because the wrong state was the one that had the upper hand in all of this. So I'm going to call it Israelization. So if I say that, then I'm talking about norm normalization so in 1993 to 1995 um what happened was yasser arafat felt like um armed struggle and armed resistance wasn't gaining him anything at one point it got to a point where he felt like do you know what i just have to cave in i have to cave into international law because at first when fatah was first formed in 1965 it was an armed struggle it was an armed resistance and it's really interesting when um when uh, Yasser Arafat went to Iran after the Thawra, so after the um, Islamic Revolution in 1979, and um, when the uh, wrong state's embassy was taken down and the Palestinian embassy was erected, um, Imam Khomeini said some very piercing words to him. He said, beware of not going to support, to seek support from entities like Russia and entities like, so that was the USSR back then, and entities like America, right? Have faith in God, draw out your swords, right? And understand that victory is on your side and then God will send other nations to your aid. So those were the piercing words of Imam Khomeini. And that was at a time when Yasser Arafat was um, very revolutionary and, and very in the whole armed struggle. And it's actually really interesting that when the Oslo Accords uh, were broken out, um, the Oslo Accords abandoned the 1948 territories. The Oslo Accords said, you know what, I'm not just only recognizing the wrong state and its legitimacy, but I'm recognizing that 80% of that stolen Palestinian land, I'm going to classify it as Israeli, right? So my only contention right now is West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. That's the only focus that I'm going to have. And what's very interesting is you find out that the greatest amount of annexation of Palestinian land on what's considered internationally Palestinian territory in the West Bank, that happened during the Oslo Accords. That happened when Yitzhak Rabin was in power. That's when you had the greatest amount of Palestinian land theft. So what does this tell us? What does this tell us about the nature of the so-called two-state solution? Do they really care about two states when they're annexing more and more Palestinian land illegally whilst the peace process is coming into effect? They split up the West Bank during the Oslo Accords. That's when the Palestinian Authority, the PA, um, was born. It was after the Oslo Accords. And they split it up into area A, B and C. Area A is 18% of the West Bank. That was meant to be under full Palestinian jurisdiction. And so was area C. Area C is 80% of the West Bank. You have area B, which is about 22%. And it was agreed that that would be under Israeli and, and Palestinian control. Um, so it was a bilateral um, control. But um, you realize that actually... 
all the promises made during the Oslo Accord weren't even fulfilled. Now, right now, we see the wrong state has full control, full security control of the whole of the West Bank. And when it comes to um, Area C, which is 60% of the uh, West Bank, it has full control over civilian life, over schools, over the economy, and of course, over the security and the and the um, military expanse. And we see that actually the uh, illegal settlements have only expanded. Today, you have over 250 illegal settlements in the West Bank, recognized illegal under international law, with 750,000 uh, settlers from the wrong state. And it's really interesting when you look at the deal of the century. And when I look at the deal of the century, um, which was instigated by Trump and his son-in-law, um, Jared Kushner, and um, that deal of the century, what it's sought to do is is it sought to um, recognize the illegal settlements as legal. The, the crux of the deal of the century was to say to the Palestinians, we're going to give you $50 billion, right? And this was brokered by some of the Arab countries and Trump as well. We'll give you $50 billion. You can work on projects on Gaza and the West Bank. In return for those $50 billion, what do you do? You forego any acts of resistance. Again, this shows you how powerful and how threatened they are by the resistance and its ability to change the balance of forces on the ground. You recognize the Golan Heights um, as um, Israeli territory. You recognize the, you forego the West Bank. The West Bank, the settlements are ours now. The annexation of the Jordan Valley, you recognize that. You recognize Jerusalem now becomes Israeli territory. All in response, all in turn for what? for a bribery of $50 billion. And it's really interesting that even the Palestinian authorities, and we're discussing how the Palestinian authorities was born out of the um, Oslo Accords and, and out of the so-called um, two-state solution, even they don't even recognize the legitimacy of the deal of the century. But what does that show you? If we've gone from a place where they were talking about a two-state solution to now the deal of the century, which was broken, which was brokered by Netanyahu and Trump, you know, and the um, Arab states were all very complicit with that, what does that tell you? It tells you the objective. It tells you there was never a two-state solution to begin with. The objective was always to seize every single iota of that land. Were you surprised when um, when Iran and some resistance groups who are the main aides for Palestine, uh, were you surprised that you know the Palestinians turned against them a few years ago when when, when you know when we had the whole support for Assad? Wasn't this a U-turn? You know, it's not as it's not as simple as you know. Politically, they also have their differences, and it showed in the in, in 2011 onwards when you know Bashar Assad uh, was only supported by again the same group of people, and the Palestinians turned turned their back to, and in fact they they, they spoke against him, and they maybe supported in trying to bring him down. And you're saying that he's supporting them so you know there's right. some confusion here right again i think this shows you the the centrality of the palestinian cause and how i mean from the perspective of the islamic republic um there were many periods where um they wanted to support for example gaza and the onslaught that they were facing in 2014 um against the aggression from the wrong state and um, and even when they wanted to give them weapons and they wanted to arm them they said you know we don't want this you know from the side of the um islamic resistance in palestine they considered it a kind of betrayal like how could you be supporting Bashar al-Assad and their kind of perceptions that they had but i guess look from the side of the um, islamic resistance in palestine um they clearly did not see the holistic picture for what it was they unfortunately uh gave into the western narrative at that time which was that you know the dominant narrative was Bashar was a war criminal he's gassing his people there are chemical attacks etc etc um and the one question I always ask is you know when was the international community especially mainstream media ever caring about innocent people to all of a sudden now raise the plight of the um, Syrian people. So it shows you that they didn't really care. What we saw was um, the new the new Middle East project was the American project for the region. They wanted the whole region to be under American subservience. Um, and in order to do that, a huge component of that was, of course, the main component was of that was dismantling the Islamic Republic. Republic of Iran so they drew out a map they said okay let's invade Afghanistan and then let's invade Iraq and then let's station our troops in Pakistan that way we've kind of we've engulfed the Islamic Republic then 
let's go into Lebanon, let's cause chaos and havoc with the assassination of um, Rafiq al-Hariri, exactly, who was the Lebanese prime minister. That's when you had the removal of Syria, of Syrian ground troops in Lebanon, and they removed their political cover. And now that made the resistance in Lebanon very um, vulnerable, right? Because the resistance in Lebanon was receiving its political cover and its political support. The entity it was receiving that from was Syria. Right. Um, and so that made Lebanon vulnerable. And so it's interesting. That's when um, the Islamic resistance went from being just a military to also being political. So in 2005, um, the Lebanese resistance decided that it wanted to enter the fold of politics. Right. Um, and so it formed what was known as the March 14th Alliance with um, Michel Aoun, um, who represents the Free Pate. Uh, patriotic movement um, and and they came into power so right so right now they are part of the government in Lebanon right but the point that I'm trying to draw over here was part of this new M Middle East project was actually dismantling the resistance group in Lebanon they wanted to completely um, crush the axis of resistance um, and so that's why they instigated the 2006 war and it was a pre-planned war from America's side another huge uh, goal was to uh, basically crush the Syrian president so they took advantage of the Arab Spring um and within that, they funded factions known as, you know, the Free Syrian Army, which then carved itself into Al-Nusra, Jabhat Tahrir al-Sham, etc., etc., and ISIS as well. Um, and the sole aim over here was to topple Bashar al-Assad. Um, now, now, this caused a lot of, this actually caused a lot of factionalism when it came to support for, for the Palestinian cause. Um, you had a lot of people, not, not just the Palestinian resistance, you had many normal people, you know, many people from many different countries who um, were always on the side of the axis of resistance that all of a sudden said, hmm, you know, what's, what's going on here? How are they supporting Bashar al-Assad? There's definitely a proxy war as well as some argue that there's also a sectarian feud between certain groups. They may be united when it comes to certain factors, but other times they're disunited. In fact, they're at war with each other. And some may argue that uh, the Shia are always on the front line in their defense of Palestine. Uh, in their defense for the rights of Palestinians. Yet you will never hear of a demonstration uh, taking place by Palestinians supporting uh, Shias being killed in Iraq by ISIS. Right. So the first thing that I would say is it's always in the interest of the West to frame it as a sectarian issue. The West has never cared about whether you are Sunni, Shia, Salafi, Christian, atheist, whatever. The fight of the West in the region is where is with the axis of resistance. So the reason that we see, for example, Shia, um, when we talk about Shia oppression, for example, the reason that we see the Shia as being targeted more than ever is actually because it so happens to coincide with the fact that you find that in those locations you have resistance fractions, right? So you've mentioned the example of the Islamic Republic of Iran. We can talk about Iraq and the Hashishabi. We can talk about the Houthis uh, in Yemen. We can even talk about Nigeria, um, the Islamic movement of Nigeria and the onslaught that Sheikh Zegzaki and his followers are facing. Um, it so happens that because they are anti-imperialism, uh, because they tell the line of... Um, no to foreign occupation, no to foreign meddling and influence in our affairs, um, you know, that they are being targeted. Um, and this is a very, very important point to make. It's not about their sect. It's not about this. The sect isn't the reason that they are being targeted. The reason that we see, you know, so-called Shia oppression, even if we look at the likes of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia couldn't, they're not religious to care about whether you're Shia or Sunni or Salafi, right? Their monarchy considers that it owns the land and the people and everything in between. I mean, they even called the monarchy after their own name, right? Um, and all, for example, Saudi Arabia's concern is with actually um, preserving itself, you know? And so, for example, why is it threatened by an entity like the uh, Houthis? Because the Houthis challenge their legitimacy. The, the Houthis challenge their right to exist. And so that's why, for example, an entity like Saudi Arabia is being used to, to target um, other entities like the IMN, the Islamic Movement of Nigeria, um, for, for example. So they try to frame it like it's a sectarian issue. Sectarianism becomes that 
cover that they use to justify the onslaught on uh, sections of the Shia community when in fact those sections of the Shia community are being targeted um, because they are resistant in their nature. So this is the first very important point. Um, the second point that I want to make is that we need to distinguish between uh, things. You know, so ISIS, you know, it claims to champion Islam, it's effectively hijacked our religion. By that same language and rhetoric, then I shouldn't pray and I shouldn't fast and I shouldn't even observe religious duties because ISIS claims to be Muslim and, and they're doing that. Do you see the argument over here? And it's the same thing that you can say about, for example, even looking at Daesh, should we defeat ISIS in Iraq because many of those who have joined ISIS happen to be Iraqi? It doesn't work like that. We need to separate and distinguish the issues. When we're talking about Palestine, we're talking about qadiyat haq, we're talking about justice, we're talking about uh, truth, we're talking about dismantling oppression. This is something that I mentioned in the beginning. God takes interest in the issue of Palestine. God takes interest on the issue of Al-Aqsa. God takes interest on a land that is usurped. We should go read what our, our hadith say about even what Imam Ali Islam says about removing even a stone that, that is part of someone's home. And they don't approve of that, right? You know, he says that whole structure becomes unjust, you know, if you just take that one little stone. Um, you know, and furthermore, um, I don't judge my level of wala or my level of um, support. support for a cause uh, based on the host population itself. So even if every Palestinian was to turn around and say, meh, okay, you know, Palestine... I'm 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 happy to compromise. I just gave you um, the default position on the PLO. You know, the PLO turned its back on the issue of the 1948 borders. We stood against that, and why do and why did by the way and the actual resistance on the ground in Palestine, so Hamas, uh, Islamic Jihad, and Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine stood against the PLO. And this is very important. And the vast majority of the Palestinians also stood against that. And the reason they stood against that was because it was unjust. So you can turn around and say, okay, hold on. But, you know, this is the opinion of the PLO. You know, this is the opinion of, I don't have to agree with even the, the Palestinians, how they're viewing this issue, because it's qadiyat haq, it's, it's an issue of truth. It's not about how the Palestinians, let alone, and we also gave the examples of the resistance, for example. We said how the axis of resistance, how the, Islamic, how the Islamic Republic never ceased to support the Islamic resistance in Palestine, despite the fact that they directly turned against them. I mean, what does this tell you, you know? And... They've never once ceased to continue supporting them. This tells you that it's about a cause. It's not about this petty infighting and actually recognizing the bigger picture, recognizing that when we divide ourselves and we give into this petty rhetoric, we are handing over what America wants. We are handing over what the wrong state wants. We're handing it over on a silver platter. They want to see this sectarianism. They want to see us divide on this issue. And it's recognizing that the wrong state is a threat on all. If the wrong state is not dismantled, this same oppression can happen in any other country in the world. And it represents a direct security threat to all the countries in the region. So when I'm protesting against ISIS, it's not just for Iraq and Syria. It's for Lebanon. It's for Iran. It's for Pakistan. It's for all the countries. It's even for the West. It's even for the West because they came back to haunt the West, right? Some, some, but some argue that, you know, I understand where you're coming from. And I'm trying to understand their point of view is that I feel disheartened for years. I've gone out and said Quds is my qadiyya. Quds is something that I'm calling out for. Quds is something that I support. Quds till my last breath. And then I see a demonstration being held in support of someone who's butchered me and killed my family members. Do you see where they're coming from? They'll feel disheartened if you're, if you're, if you're. I've been supporting your cause, and all of a sudden you're supporting Saddam, and you you've built a statue in your country for Saddam, and you call him a shaheed, you call him a martyr. But you know where they 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 feel that I'm always been on your side. Now you're even you're praising my killer. Where's the? All right, we have to understand. There's something called propaganda. Yeah, propaganda mm. exists. Now, when the Palestinians are uh, facing the most brutal crimes against humanity. And a man like Saddam comes along and says, I'm going to support you mm. with arms, with weapons, with mm. technology, with finance, with humanitarian aid. What do you think is going to be the natural reaction of that host population? They're going to like... Are you seeing where I'm coming yeah. from? And further, further to that, 
how can I assess whether they were fully aware of the crimes that Saddam committed? I am pretty sure that as people who are oppressed, if they knew the Iraqi population was being mass slaughtered in the way they were, they would not condone that. So why are we assuming that they that 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 was their default position and that they knew that and that that knowledge was known to them? And furthermore, Saddam never cared about civilians. Saddam butchered his own people. Saddam mm. gassed his own people. He gassed the Iranians, he gassed the Kurds, he gassed the Iraqis, right? He went into a full-blown war based on the whims of the West. Saddam was put there by the West. Saddam was disposed by the West, right? That is the reality of someone like Saddam Hussein. So Saddam never cared about the plight of the Palestinian people. But you know what? He used that. He used that as a political weapon. He knew how important the Palestinian cause was in the hearts of the people. Mm. And so he wanted to take advantage of that. He wanted to gain his own popularity and he sought to kind of take advantage of that by um you know showing support for palestine if i should show support for palestine maybe i can garner the support of other nations and other peoples on my side so we have to understand that actually the reason that saddam did this was to cause factionalism mm. on the Palestinian, on the palestinian cause so the moment we bite into this rhetoric we are serving the head of the snake we are serving america we are serving the wrong state you know, and I say a simple hadith by um, Imam Ali alayhi salam, you know, where he says, the fitna is sleeping, may God curse the one that resurrects it and may curse the one that awakes it, you know. So anyone that uses this kind of rhetoric, that shares any kinds of videos showing these things as a way to weaken the Palestinian cause, that is, al-fitna ashaddu min al-qatl, fitna is worse than even killing. You know, my question is, where was uh, Saddam when the Nakba happened in 1947? Why are we conflating issues? What has the innocent men, women and children in Gaza being bombed to the Stone Ages, carpet bombed? What has that got to do with? What has that got to do with some of the perceptions of the host populations of that country? It has no bearing. We're conflating issues, right? And actually, this is a tactic that the superpowers want us to get involved with. They want sectarianism to, to, to kind of um, flourish so that all attention is taken away from this issue. And that's the core issue. And let's always go back to what our marajat say. The key here of who is Sayyid Sistani, Hafizullah, who makes it very, very clear that every ounce of that land is usurped and it needs to return back to its rightful owners. And that happens by any means necessary. And he even makes it, he even prohibits it, right? He even prohibits um, buying from companies, for example, that directly have a stake in the war crimes of the uh, wrong state right companies that have a stake companies that are, have invested on the ground companies that have factories and facilities on the ground he makes that categorically clear so when our umar are coming and saying that this is a core issue of the ummah that we all need to rally behind this is an islamic issue this is a human issue you know where does this leave this petty talking petty at the end of the day because it's not based on logic it's not based on rationality we fight against oppression wherever we see it right but especially with the palestinian cause because as i mentioned in the beginning it is a catastrophe beyond which there is no catastrophe they call it the ongoing nakba this nakba has been continuing since 1948 ethnically cleansing is continued to happen right and if there's no justice for them then there's no justice for anyone some people argue that since the, the demise of the Holy Prophet وسلم, the Shias have always been uh, oppressed. The Shias have always been killed. Um, and if, if we're talking about time, then we've been oppressed more than anyone, more than the Palestinians. If Since 1947, then we've been oppressed for thousands of years where we would be killed in places of where we go for ziyarah, we'd be killed for even doing practicing our own rituals. And shouldn't we now ask and raise awareness about our oppression? Should we, for example, the same week we're demonstrating for Palestine, should there not be also a demonstration for Jannatul Baqiyah? Should we not, like you mentioned eloquently, that maybe some Palestinians or the ones that are coming out and saying we love Saddam, or we, they have no idea about Saddam, like you mentioned. I'm 100% sure about that. They don't know any of his crimes. And if they do, and they're, they, you know, because he's killing Shias, then they're Nasabis, and they, they just, that's their, their sickness and illness inside their hearts. So I can't do anything about it. Like you said, it's not about so much the, 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 what, what, what a certain group of people think, it's about the actual cause. But shouldn't I also be, you know, giving time to my, at least if not the same, some time to my also oppression that's taken place? Shouldn't I also be getting more people, you know, get awareness about also my oppression sure so give it the same yeah, level yeah. if not if not a bit less 
So first of all, they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that you do one without the other or prefer one over the other. No, and I think it's, as you said, naturally people tend to be in their innate disposition to go towards their own causes and to rally against that. And if we talk about the Shia community, I mean... I haven't heard of a single scholar that's that's not mentioned genital baqi that does get mentioned these issues Shia oppression Daesh does get mentioned right um, actually what you find is there's a lack of mention of the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian issue and the magnitude of it and I stress this again look oppression has happened since the beginning of mankind this kind of sirat this conflict between good and evil mm. but what we see that is happening in Palestine is unparalleled to what has happened before Right in terms of the magnitude and the nature of the oppression, why you can talk about apartheid, for example, you can talk about apartheid South South Africa, right? You had gangs of white people that came in, they colonized the people's lands, um, but still, that doesn't compare to what we saw transpired in the Nakba. Why? Because you had this collusion you had the greatest settler colonial conspiracy project of its kind where imagine the whole world superpowers came together to conspire to uproot a people from their land to ethnically cleanse them by any means necessary and they gave gave the full ammunition to the zionist terrorists to conduct that and that's an ongoing oppression that nature of its oppression continues and the world continues to not just turn a blind eye when i talk about the world i don't talk about the mass population there's been a lot of solidarity when it comes to this issue but from the top right the world superpowers it's not in their interest to champion the cause of the oppression of the palestinian people right and so this will continue and continue until as um we described and we spoke in detail the the balance of forces on the ground are shifted in such a way that it will be forced to confront this reality and it will be forced to um basically just cease to exist but this is the point that i want to make here the palestinian oppression is not like any oppression it is very unique in its nature settler colonialism only exists in one place today and that is in historic palestine and you see uh, war crimes on top of war war uh, war crimes are being committed from the desecration of holy sites to the killing of innocent men women and children to the demolition of homes to the bombing of hospitals um educational facilities schools libraries that's four war crimes i've just mentioned to you four war crimes all happening in one go on stolen land that does not belong to them and the rest of the world is expected to just accept it and to move on this is what we need to address it's not like any other oppression that has occurred anywhere but does that mean we don't raise awareness about other oppressions no why do we present it like it's a either this this or that that's very wrong it's all integrated the struggle of humanity is one struggle I'd like to thank you. I wish you all the best. Uh, we, of course, have a duty as well upon us. Um, the duty, I feel, starts with dua uh, for the hastening of the reappearance. And then there's 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 more to do, whether it's writing articles, whether speaking out, whether it's attending protests, whatever. I, th- I feel each person has his own uh, duty. And inshallah, we, we pray that we can unite on this front. We can unite on rather than having the Palestine issue a issue that disunites us. In fact, my opinion is that Palestine should unite us to speak out against oppression in all its forms. Thank you for your time. And I, I hope, I hope inshallah that we can do a part two. Inshallah. Thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure and honor.